You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Aisha. Today, we have a very special guest. He is an attorney and an activist who is here to talk about one of the most shocking phenomenons in American policing. It is about the deputy gangs of L.A. Hello, Christian. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into this activism? My name is Christian Contreras. I am a civil rights lawyer here in Los Angeles. I am, I am a junior partner with Gazar Henderson Carrasco, which is a civil rights firm with roughly 35 cases, civil rights cases stemming from unreasonable searches and seizures. Our cases are against municipalities, cities, individual police officers, all stemming from, like I said, unre- unreasonable searches and seizures with an emphasis on police shootings and deadly shootings. I am also a co-founder of Justice X. Justice X is a coalition of black and brown lawyers advancing black and brown interests and the interests of marginalized communities. We are deeply involved in the community. We have a number of issues that we work on, including a class action against the city of Los Angeles for the misclassification of thousands of individuals as gang members or gang associates. We represent protesters pro bono. We also represent uh, union workers at LAX, essential workers who have been deprived of their medical benefits. We have an education initiative where we're hoping to teach uh, young kids who are likely impoverished about the law and uh, making connections with them with uh, trial lawyers and civil litigators. We have a voting initiative where we want to educate the masses about voting and the propositions and candidates. And we just have different initiatives that we work on based off the needs of the community. My particular work with uh, deputy gangs and you know police departments really stems from my work and Gazar Henderson Carrasco, which we have a number of cases against, uh, like I said, municipalities, cities, and in particular now the county of Los Angeles, which uh, has been seen to, uh, you know, ratify and really allow these deputy gangs to exist in the in the county in the Los Angeles Sheriff's County uh, Department. Okay, so the first time I heard of the Compton Police Gang was when. I read a news report about a teen that was shot by the police. Yeah, his name is Andres Guardado. Okay, can you talk about him and what happened there? So it's interesting how, you know, we're talking about how the, you're talking about the executioner. So what this sprang from was the county of Los Angeles, it's a huge county. You know, we're bigger than uh, many other counties. You know, we have millions and millions of people. We have, I think, what, 10 million people here? Let me double check that. Yeah, we have 10 million people in the county of Los Angeles. So because we have 10 million people in the county of Los Angeles, there is one sheriff's department which oversees these 10 million people. And we have 83 cities within the county, including the city of Los Angeles. So what that means is we have a big sheriff's department. The sheriff's department has roughly 10,000 sworn personnel. So we're talking about 10,000 deputies within this sheriff's department. So within each different subsect in each different part of the county, you're seeing that there are different stations, obviously, right? So for example, we have the Compton Sheriff Station there. You know, it's obviously in the city of Compton, but the thing is the city of Compton contracts the sheriff's department to actually patrol its city. And we saw there that Slow down. What does it mean by contracts? Who owns the sheriff's department then? So no one really owns the sheriff's department. The sheriff's department is a subsect of the county of Los Angeles. But because the county of Los Angeles, like I said, is comprised of cities, some cities have the option to have their own police department. Like, for example, the city of Bellflower, I believe, they have their own uh, police department. But if you don't have your own police department, then you have to contract with the sheriff's station for them to actually act as your police, you know? Ah, so 
Okay, um, quick question. Does that mean it is less democratic because you're not voting for your sheriff at the city level? No, because the members of the county, the constituency still vote for a sheriff. So you, you still get to vote for who's going to be the top sheriff of the sheriff's department. And currently, the top sheriff is Alex Villanueva. Okay, so I first got a wind of um, your project called Justice X because of the shooting where the police just chased down. Uh, it was weird. Okay, so the police in the county of Los Angeles, Compton, and so a whistleblower came out. And what did the whistleblower say? So let, let's lay a foundation before we get to the whistleblower, whose name is Art. Gonzalez, and the art is short for Arobuesto. So what happened was uh, there's these deputy gangs. Uh, these deputy gangs operate out of specific stations. And the allegation here is that there is a deputy gang operating out of the Compton Sheriff Station called the Executioners. So the Executioners are a group of deputy gang members who do, do legal acts who engage in illegal acts. And what's most troubling with this specific deputy gang is that it's comprised of mainly Latinos. So it, it appears uh, based off this whistleblower, Art Gonzalez, that these Latino deputy deputies within the sheriff's department um, actually perpetuate crimes against other races and uh, other deputies who are not part of this deputy gang, including Art Gonzalez. Now, Andres Guardado was killed in mid June of 2020, Andres Guardado was an 18-year-old security guard patrolling an area of Gardena. Uh, Gardena is a city within the county of Los Angeles. Similarly, like uh, Compton, it um, is patrolled by the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department. Andres Guardado was running away when he was killed, and he was shot in the back by Deputy Vega and Deputy uh, Hernandez, uh, which were Los Angeles Sheriff's Department deputies. They tried to eliminate evidence by ripping away cameras from different businesses surrounding the area. And then subsequently, uh, it was alleged that Deputy Vega was chasing ink. So the term chasing ink derives from when these deputies were part of these deputy gangs. They actually received tattoos which show the logo of that specific deputy gang. And most of these deputy gangs, they have their own logo. So the executioners, it's a skull with this sort of military helmet and a gun with smoke coming out of the gun. So when someone is chasing ink, when a deputy gang is chasing ink, that means that they want to get that tattoo on them. I mean, of course, they could get it on them whenever they want. But as part of being these, this in this deputy gang, you have to be authorized by the leadership of the gang to actually get the tattoo. But before that, we held a press conference in front of the Hall of Justice in downtown LA before this even came out, but after the shooting, that the other deputy that Vega was with, and Deputy Vega was the primary shooter, but his partner, Deputy Hernandez, was in a deputy gang. And he was actually part of the 3,000 Boys. The 3,000 Boys was a gang within the jails of the county of Los Angeles. And their name stems from the level that they patrolled, which is the 3,000th floor, so three, the 3,000 boys. We held a press conference which showed a picture of him with other deputies who were throwing up gang signs, and I could provide you with that picture. And we, we told the media, we told the public that this guy, the, the partner, was in a deputy gang. Now, the whistleblower, Art Gonzalez, alleged that Vega and Hernandez were chasing him to be part of the executioners. And that's where this whistleblower's testimony stems from. Wow. Were any of the uh, police officers involved charged with killing Mr. Guardado? So this is how it works. After the shooting, you have an investigation. This investigation usually lasts 12 to 16 months. In the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, it's called the homicide investigation. In other departments, it's called a use of force investigation. It really depends on the department. In the county of Los Angeles, from which these deputies uh, are from, which killed on Desperado, it's called a homicide investigation. The homicide investigation needs to be completed 
first, like I said, it's 12 to 13 months. Then the Justice System Integrity Division within the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, District, District Attorney Sheriff Department, District Attorney's Office, pardon, the District Attorney of Los Angeles conducts their own investigation. And I, I'm throwing up air quotes and I'm signaling air quotes uh, <laughs> around the word investigation because pretty much what they do is they rubber stamp the underlying homicide investigation and just defer to what was done by the underlying homicide investigation. But the issue with that is, is that these homicide investigations are conducted by police officers. So we're allowing the police to police themselves. And another issue is that whether a police officer is charged really stems from who is the district attorney. Currently, the district attorney is Jackie Lacey, who throughout her entire tenure, which is almost a decade, has only filed charges against one peace officer. And the reason why she filed charges against that peace officer was because he was shooting at a car when the person he killed was driving away. And by the way, my office, Gazar Henderson and Carrasco, was uh, the deputy, were, were the attorneys who were uh, attorneys of record for the civil case. So we represented the decedent's family in the civil case against uh, the county. Um, so what it means is that these deputies, first, it's up in the air whether these deputies are going to be charged. And a big issue is going to be next month when a new, if, if a new district attorney is elected. So currently right now we have George Gascon running up against the, uh, the current district attorney, uh, Jackie Lacey. And since the time of recording this episode, George Gascon has been elected the district attorney and Jackie Lacey has lost her re-election bid. Um, we're rallying behind George Gascon because he is a reformist and he is pledging to really investigate these shootings. So we're run, like I said, we're running up against two things to determine whether the deputies who shot and killed on this or the other are going to be charged criminally. First, it's not right yet to uh, determine whether there's enough um, factual information to charge mm-hmm. these deputies. And then second, a, a new district attorney may be in office by the time it's right to determine whether enough information is available to charge these deputies. Just to illustrate the two-tiered system, suppose you or I did the exact same thing. What would have happened to us by now? Well, of course, we would have been charged uh, with the crime. We would have been charged with first degree, second degree murder, or maybe involuntary man- involuntarily manslaughter. But the issue with these deputies and uh, at which standard they're held at is most of the time they're saying that they shot for a lawful purpose in self-defense. So we don't have the full information with Andres Guardado, and let's, let's continue using that example. But the deputies are going to say, he had a gun and he threw it. But even though he threw it, when he was still running away, he was reaching for his waistband. So we believe that because he was reaching for his waistband, we thought he was going to pull out another gun and shoot the deputies. And that's the reason why they shot. I guarantee you that's what they're going to say. I haven't read their statements. I don't think they've given statements yet, but I could get, almost guarantee you that's what they're going to say. And I know this because I've prosecuted numerous cases against these deputies, and that's what they always say. They have a script. And let me tell you this, before they even meet with anyone, these deputies meet with an attorney. And this attorney preps them as to what to say and how to articulate how they were in fear for their lives. So uh, it's always the same script because the attorneys script them, the attorneys prep them for these uh, interviews that they give and these statements that they give. While we're talking about the legal stuff, can you explain what qualified immunity is? Oh, of course. And I just submitted a brief in the Ninth Circuit uh, arguing for the dismantling of qualified immunity. So essentially what qualified immunity is, it's a judicial doctrine that was created by the Supreme Court. uh, And this is a doctrine that exists within the Civil Rights Act of 1871. So as we all know, the Civil War in America started in 1861. This war lasted four years. It ended in 1865 after four four years of a bloody war. In 1865, the 13th Amendment was ratified, and that's what emancipated formally uh, the slaves, right? Then six years later, in 1871, Congress passed the Civil Rights Act of 1871. And what this Civil Rights Act of 1871 did was pretty much a shield 
for the tyranny against the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan, that was, you know, reigning terror throughout the South over African-Americans, black people. So this act, this Civil Rights Act, was enacted to protect black people because they were being harassed, being tormented and terrorized by the KKK. Over the years, this act was used to sue governmental entities civilly in court for any violation of their rights as guaranteed under the Constitution. So how these actions stem, these lawsuits stem from, is for a violation of the Fourth Amendment. The Fourth Amendment says that uh, people are free from unreasonable search and seizure from government, governmental actors, and this applies to state actors. So when a police officer uses force, which is unreasonable or excessive, including the use of a gun, the use of deadly force, someone who is a victim of that can allege that it is a violation of their Fourth Amendment right because the use of that force was unnecessary. So when you have a violation of your Fourth Amendment right, you could sue in court under a statute called 42 U.S.C. 1983, and that allows you, like I said, to sue governmental actors, including state actors. Now, qualified immunity, what that is, that's a defense against these suits. So qualified immunity is a two-step analysis. The first step is that a plaintiff um, must first prove that um, a violation occurred. So the defense says, the, the officers say, well, there's no constitutional violation. So because there's no constitutional violation, then qualified immunity applies. But because it's a two-step process, the officers don't even have to get to that under a case, I believe, called Casella versus Hughes, uh, which came out roughly 10 years ago, roughly, roughly 10 years ago, the Supreme Court said, you don't, even, you don't even have to get to the first step. You can get to the second step, and if the second step applies, then qualified immunity uh, works, or qualified immunity applies. So let me break this down. Let me let me simplify it. Let me tell you how qualified immunity applies now that I've laid a foundation. Qualified immunity applies, and it's a defense to these civil suits, is there's two steps. There has to be a constitutional violation, and then the second step is that constitutional violation needs to be clearly established at the time that that alleged violation occurred. But qualified immunity works in a way that you don't even have to prove that a constitutional violation occurred. You don't even have to prove as a defendant, as a peace officer, that a constitutional violation occurred if the court finds that it wasn't clearly established that what you were doing was wrong. It wasn't clearly established that a constitutional violation occurred. So what that means is clearly established, all it means is there weren't prior cases that were similar to the current case. And because that allows a judge so much discretion, that's a big pro problem with qualified immunity because if a judge finds that there wasn't a case similar to the current case, which was clearly established, then a peace officer, a police officer, doesn't even have to prove the first step, which is that a constitutional violation occurred. So once qualified immunity applies, the whole case is over, unless you have state causes of action. Okay, I was about to ask that, so you read my mind. <laughs> so it, that really depends how you plead your complaint. And that's why at my firm, we plead it in a way where we have the federal claims and then we have state law claims. And then uh, we, we file it in a certain way to make sure that even if qualified immunity is granted, we can still go, go back to state court and continue prosecuting the case. And does the qualified immunity stop the police from getting criminally charged or does it stop just civil or both? Qualified immunity is only a doctrine which applies to civil suits. So qualified immunity in no way applies to criminal charges. How about we separate this into two parts? First part, we'll talk about the criminal aspect of a police shooting, and then we'll move to the civil aspect. So I guess what really that most people don't understand is for a police officer, self-defense is defined very broadly. So it's just a subjective fear for their life, right? Well, that's the thing. In order to use force, and this applies throughout the United States, the force used in self-defense needs to, needs to be proportionate to the force being used against you. So if you punch me, 
and I'm an officer, I can't use my gun. I would be able to punch you back or tackle you or do something to that effect. So that's why, you know, when you see these type of um, cases where the officers use force, most of the time a gun is involved. And we see that in Andres Guardado when a gun was allegedly found at the scene, which I don't think is 100% accurate. And then you also see that with Dijon Kizzy, which was a, a, another case that uh, happened in Los Angeles where Dijon Kizzy was running away and then he dropped his backpack. And then when he was dropping his backpack, um, there was a gun that was falling as well. And then as soon as the officer saw the gun, they started shooting. So the, the articulation there originated. The, the gun was not near his, so he was not near his gun. And when they started shooting. He did not have it. He was not holding the gun for a fact when they started shooting. That's 50 years ago. The officers say that we thought he was in a restraining. We thought he started shooting, and that's why we shot spraying out. that's okay, according to the Even with the use of force, yes, because even with how they articulated is that these officers do act with impunity because they were about to get shot. Investigating themselves, police policing themselves. In order so to it's really sure hard. They didn't get killed. to really lose your title as a police officer. And even if, force. let's say, you get like fired said, from one police department, here in the laws in California, say that you could be hired at another department. So we saw in our firm, we see that there's officers and deputies who kill someone, and then a couple weeks later or a couple months later, they kill someone else, and. They, the officers uh, within the department and the uh, investigators find these shootings justified and they just continue killing people. So, yeah, they do act with, with impunity and it's really hard to get in trouble as a police officer. And are the records of previous misconduct or complaints available to the public? No. Well, actually, there's a new Senate bill which passed in 1421 which allegedly allows the public to receive information now. But even then, the, the police departments and the, the cities and the counties, they try to say that it's privileged, that it's still part of an investigation, and that information can't be released. So the, the laws are improving, but even with that new recent amendment to the law, most of the time, even in our cases, we would operate under a protective order. So we, wouldn't, uh, we weren't allowed to disseminate this information, disclose this information to the public, and only the lawyers would know this information, and then the case would settle, and that information would still remain uh, private and non-disclosable. Wow. I don't know. Like, this is actually flabbergasting to hear this. I also heard that there are some police gangs in L.A. with white nationalist ties. Can you talk a little bit about that? Right. So the main one that was really connected with uh, nationalistic, white nationalistic ties, was called the Vikings. And that deputy gang operated out of Linwood. And, you know, the Viking symbol and the Viking mascot is really prevalent amongst white supremacists. But this gang, you know, because it operated in Linwood, which is predominantly black and brown individuals, you know, it, there was a racial component to it because it was mainly white deputies who were in this deputy gang and interestingly, uh, an undersheriff called Paul Tanaka, who I think is in prison now or was definitely in indicted on federal charges, was part of this deputy gang. And he even had a tattoo and everything. So it's interesting how these gangs permeate through, in through the entire department. And I'm pulling up Paul Tanaka's information here. Yeah, he was convicted April 4th, 2016 in federal court of conspiracy to obstruct justice and obstruction of justice. And even if you pull up his information, he was part of a white supremacist police gang, the Linwood Vikings, uh, you know? So these gangs really aren't circumscribed to certain individuals because they're throughout the entire county. It's not just black deputies. It's not just uh, Latino deputies. It's, not just, it's just not white deputies. It's all of them. So it, it permeates throughout the entire department. And I will tell you this, it goes all, all the way to the top. Because if you look at Sheriff Alex Villanueva, the top sheriff, he has said himself that he does not want to investigate these deputy gangs because he alleges it's going to be a witch hunt. And that's not right. One, one of the partners here in my firm, Humberto Guizar, 
took this very issue to the Supreme Court under a case called Garcetti versus Ceballos. And what that case says is that if you're a government employee, you have a limited First Amendment right. So Villanova, he says that he doesn't want to check if these deputies have tattoos because they have a First Amendment right. That's false. As a deputy, as a peace officer, as a sworn officer, you have limited First Amendment rights and your First Amendment right isn't the same as an average citizen. So Villanueva is being complicit in these deputy gangs and allowing them to continue to thrive within his department. Isha asked me to record a promo that we can use till 2024. So here it goes. Need something to do while you're waiting for those $2,000 checks or $1,400 checks or maybe a reduced price on a download of the inauguration performances after being means tested? Well, we have three years worth of interviews with historians, journalists, and activists for you to check out, as well as our newsletter. Please go to historically.substack.com and support us with your subscription. That's historically.substack.com. These gangs get started. It's really hard to say how these gangs get started because they're very secretive. They're like secret societies. You know, even myself, someone who prosecutes uh, these cases against these these cities and these municipalities, a lot of the time you get pushback as to the mere existence of them. So if there's so much secrecy as to their mere existence, it, it's much harder to determine why they even started. But I can tell you that the element of crime is something that is uh, common in all these deputy gangs. The element of oppressing people and violating their constitutional rights is something that is common in most of these deputy gangs. So you see these deputy gangs coming together and then committing crimes such as violating the constitutional rights of people. And that is common within most of these gangs. Do they ever do other gang activities like smuggle drugs, etc.? That it's really hard to say because, again, the secrecy component of it, um, I'm not sure. I don't have information to really um, attest to that or really talk about that. Okay. okay. Uh, this is actually a very important question. Um, do the police have a duty to serve and protect? Yes. You know, each deputy and each officer and each peace officer here in California have to go under the peace officer standards and training. That is a standard training for all peace officers, and it has 42 learning domains. And within those 42 learning domains, they're taught to protect the public and make sure that you know they uphold the law and protect and serve, so of course. But then, in that case, why do I see videos every day of the police shooting somebody? Because their justification to shoot the, the police officer's justification to shoot is that they are combating crime, they are shooting someone with a gun, or they're shooting someone who is a danger to the public. Let me tell you this. There's a case called Tennessee versus Garner. This is a Supreme Court case, which was decided sometime in the early 80s. And this case articulates the factors necessary to use deadly force. So a peace officer can only use deadly force when there is an imminent threat of death or serious bodily injury to oneself or to the public. So a peace officer, again, can only use deadly force when there is an imminent threat of death or great bodily injury to that peace officer or to the public. So the key there is imminent. So imminent threat of death or great bodily injury has to be present in order for these peace officers to use deadly force. And they articulate it very well. They have a script. You know, they say he had a gun. He was committing a crime. And, you know, he was reaching for his waistband and I thought he was going to shoot me. So that's the imminent threat of death or great bodily injury that he was going to shoot me with a, with a gun. So because they operate under this standard and they're trained well and they have a script, they get away with these things. They get away with these shootings. Well, they get away criminally, but how much does it cost the public for the settlements in the civil realm? Well, it depends. I know a report just came out in uh, here in Los Angeles that deputy gangs just in, it, in, it, in themselves uh, cost taxpayers $52 million. Wow, that's a lot. 
but that's that's just for the deputy gang lawsuits for use of force incidents just deadly shootings it depends it could be much more i estimate at least 50 million a year at least i think it depends because just in our firm here in los angeles you know within the city and the county and then the surrounding agencies a fair estimate maybe 50 million a year wow that's so i guess for me it is why we protest a lot of people protest people are upset but why aren't things changing um what's keeping the status quo going the police unions okay. and money can you talk about the police unions and how they work compared to how regular unions have been defanged <laughs> well frankly i'm not too informed on the unions because you know they're a waste of time <laughs> they're waste, i mean they're not a waste of time but I, let me tell you this so the unions that there's the police unions which obviously comprise of peace officers and what they do is they have large budgets and with these budgets you know they pay candidates and elected officials to lobby in favor of them and lobby against you know laws that hurt peace officers so for example there was a new bill that was uh, here in that was proposed here in California which was for the decertification of a peace officer and what that means is it allowed uh the the state to take away the certification of a peace officer as a peace officer within the state which prevented officers to jump from uh different agencies and different cities and different police departments but that bill failed because that bill failed um you know now police officers have much more leeway in how they go around different agencies but the police unions were a big factor in killing that bill so that's why it's really hard to really hold these uh, officers accountable because the police unions um undermine all forms of accountability while you were litigating how did you end up uncovering all this information well we we uncover information through discovery which is standard in every case but like i said the only way we get this information is through a protective order and what that is is the the parties of the lawsuit are binded by a contract which is called a protective order which says that we'll give you information as to these certain defendant officers as to their history and what they've done before but the only way you'll get it is if you keep it confidential so we get this we get so much information but it's disclosed only to us and it's hidden from the public because of these protective orders otherwise we wouldn't be able to get this information the defendants would fight to teeth and nail just to keep it confidential and say it's not relevant and it jeopardizes the safety of the officers and just a whole number of allegations and justifications to prevent uh, the disclosure of this information so we get it because we're lawyers and you know we prosecute these cases but the average citizen isn't doesn't really have access to this and that's a problem you are part of a group of attorneys who started this uh, project called Justice X. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well Justice X, we're a coalition of black and brown lawyers advancing black and brown interests and the interests of marginalized communities and we're involved in a number of things. You know, we have a class action against the city of Los Angeles for the misclassification of thousands of people as gang members or gang associates. primarily black and brown people who are in not the most affluent parts of the city or the county. Can you talk about that? That's actually very um I I didn't know about that. So how does one get classified as a gang member? Like what is the is there a procedure is can you check if you're even classified as a gang member? That's the issue. So when you're you're an officer and this is mainly the city of Los Angeles. This is mainly the Los Angeles Police Department. that's the defendant in this class action what they did was they filled out something which was a field investigation card what that is is simply a card where the officers write an information and the issue was that when these officers were on patrol in the field they were writing down information and then when they stopped someone they would write down a report right and in this report they would say that they're they the person the citizen the resident represented that they part of their part they were part of the of a gang but that was false 
they made that up. The police officer made that up. But then what would happen is they would take the FI card and then bring, take it to the department, and then that would be part of another report. And then there's another part where there's a Cal Gangs database system, which the attorney general revoked access to the LAPD because they were misusing it and putting false information in there. So they would get those FI cards, they would take it to the departments, make it part of other reports, and then also put it into a database, which uh, put showed, uh, showed all the people who are gang members. Then even more egregiously, there were prosecutions and prosecutors who relied on the FI cards and the false reports. So, you know, it all stems from officers being in the field and filling out false information. And our class action really revolves around a set of three officers who were criminally charged actually with the 59 count criminal complaint for uh, filing false reports and lying under penalty of perjury. And then three more officers were also charged with filing false reports for misclassifying people as gang members. So now we're seeing a total of six LAPD officers who were charged criminally for this scandal. It's, it's almost as big as Rampart. You know, these officers are lying, misclassifying people, and even in some instances, uh, making up people, making up gang members, and then filing reports within the department saying that, you know, they uh, came in contact with a gang a gang member and, or a gang associate when it never even happened. And the reason why we are able to prove that this never even happened, because these officers have body-worn video, body cameras. And what happened was someone checked the body cam video, and then they checked the report, and then in the body cam video, the person who the officer alleged was a gang member and said they were a, a, a gang member never said anything. So they obviously lied in the report because the person never admitted to being a gang member. And that's that's where our class action stems from. Okay, so one of the effects of being a quote-unquote gang member is California has some pretty strong felony murder rules. Do you want to talk about what happens there? Well, it's not, it's not really a felon. It doesn't really affect people in the felony murder aspect. It affects people in the gang enhancement. So ah. it, let's, say, let's say someone robs something from a store. Let, let's say someone, you know, takes something, a strong arm robbery from a, a bag of chips and then pushes the clerk out of the way. If that person obviously commits a robbery, yeah, they're guilty of the robbery. Uh, once they've been tried and convicted by a jury. But if there's an allegation that that person is a gang member, there is a gang enhancement statute. And that statute is Penal Code Section 186.22. And what that statute says is any person who actively participates in any criminal street gang with knowledge that its members engage in or have engaged in a pattern of criminal gang activity and who willfully promotes, furthers, or assists in any felonious criminal conduct by members of that gang shall be punished by imprisonment in a county jail for a period not to exceed one year. In state prison, 16 months or two or three years. So this enhances any underlying crime for up to three years simply because there's an allegation that, that person is in a gang. So the prosecutor does not have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that this person's actually in a gang. Well, they do have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, but all they have to do is just prove that that person, you know, um, is in a gang neighborhood or has friends who are gang members and a jury, they, they hear the word gang and they get scared and they, they prosecute that person. They, you know, convict, they, they vote to convict. And how many people do you believe are misclassified? So we know that this game database called Cal Gangs had at least 60,000 people in, in that wow. game database. We know that LAPD comprised of 25% of that 60,000. So we're talking about, about at least 15,000 people. And a lot of the people that are in our class action weren't even uploaded onto that gang database. We're talking about people who were just gang associates, allegedly, and who still had their life destroyed. One of our clients was actually a correctional officer for a prison. Our client, Sarah Ochoa, who was part of this class action, she was a correctional officer. She was someone who is part of this blue, back to blue, right? And she, is, she was a correctional officer 
in a prison, but she is from East LA. She is a young Latina. She is from East Los Angeles, an area that I'm familiar with off Soto and First Street. She was simply in her old neighborhood with some old friends. When police officers, LAPD officers go to the scene of where she is and allege that she's a gang associate. What they do after that is they file a report, they write a report, and then they contact her employer and tell them, look, she's a gang associate, this and that. Without even proving it, she gets fired from her job and she can't get her job back. So, But she was never uploaded to this cow gang database system, right? She was just a gang associate. So our class action implicates the people who are allegedly gang members in that gang database, people who were misclassified, as well as people who were misclassified as gang associates or gang members, uh, gang associates, I mean, like my client, uh, Sir Ochoa was. So it's thousands and thousands of people. It's so many lives who are ruined because of this misclassification. And it's, it's systemic. It's throughout the entire LAPD. And I know it's systemic because... Even the LAPD announced that they're investigating 20 more officers. So we have six officers who are already criminally charged, fired, and then there's a whole slew of other officers who are under investigation for the same conduct. So it's systemic within the department, and it's affecting thousands and thousands of people. So it seems like the gang database seems arbitrary, but do you know who started this policy? What year? Was it 20 years ago? 30 years old? So there isn't a policy per se. Uh, well, we don't know yet if there's a policy, but you know we know that these officers are motivated by filling quotas and you know gang. The word gang and anything revolving around gangs in the law enforcement world is somewhat of a sexy topic. So these officers try to enhance their status by allegedly putting away gang members or gang associates when you know these people are simply people who live in their neighborhoods and are residents of their neighborhoods yeah, and just because a gang exists in that neighborhood doesn't mean that person so is a gang scary. member. Right, so we have that class action, but we also represent protesters pro bono who have been criminally charged springing from the protests which began after the death of George Floyd. Uh, we're always in court. We also represent uh, LAX workers at, at um, LAX who are Union members who are having their right, yes, the airport, who are having their medical benefits deprived of them in the middle of a pandemic. And these people are essential workers. These people are, are people who are at the front line. So we represent them and we represent their interests to make sure that their medical benefits are not being deprived of them. We also have a uh, education initiative where we're hoping to educate, you know, uh, impoverished youth or, you know, youth, inner city youth who um, may not know their rights, may not know the law, and may not even have a positive role model in their life and have us, people like people in our position, lawyers and things of that nature to uh, educate them about the law and make a connection with them to empower them and tell them that they're leaders in our community. Uh, another initiative that we have is we have a voting initiative or we want to educate the public about uh, the different propositions, the candidates, and, you know, just give them a, a launching pad as to how to vote and uh, things of that nature. And I think that's pretty much it. We're involved in police reform as well. We, you know, I'm always in contact. Uh, so the number one thing from what I get is that police should not investigate themselves. We need some sort of independent body investigating them. Um, are there other recommendations that you have from your experience? In order to allow police to be held accountable? Yes. So one thing for sure is whenever a use of force incident occurs, the best thing for there to occur would be to be an independent investigation. So whenever someone is killed, a member of the public is killed, the people who are investigating that shooting are not police. Someone from, who is a third party in organization or a third party person conduct that investigation. Once that investigation is complete, another third party body conducts the, the review of the investigation to make to see to find any discrepancies or figure out what happened because everything is done in house and when everything is done in house with, with these investigations no one is being held accountable you know so i think the biggest way to 
add accountability to these investigations and police department is bringing in independent third parties who are not police officers. Can we talk a little bit about prosecutors? I've um, seen some cases in the Innocence Project that somehow make it past the grand jury that's like totally ridiculous. But why is it so hard for them to get an indictment for police officers? Like, do they tank the case or what's going on there? Of course. And we saw this recently in the Breonna Taylor uh, investigation where, you know, the grand jury uh, didn't select or didn't choose to bring charges against the involved officers for the actual shooting of Breonna Taylor. And the reason why this happens is because anytime there's a grand jury, the prosecutor puts on all the evidence, however the prosecutor wants to put on that evidence. So what this means is there's no opposing side contradicting how the evidence is being presented. So the prosecutor could present the evidence any way he or she chooses. And when they don't want an indictment, they could present the evidence as very weak and saying, well, this wouldn't be a good case. And just, you know, influence the, the grand jury in a way that is unchecked because the prosecutor has unfettered discretion to present the evidence in any way he or she wants. Yeah, I think this was a few years ago with the Tamir uh, with the man, I forgot his name, who shot um, Tamir Rice, but then he got employed at another police station. The prosecutor in the jury said, told them not to indict. So should there be an independent prosecutor too, I guess? <laughs> yes, of course. But I think, you know, anytime a prosecutor presents evidence, you know, they have their own agenda. I think all prosecutors uh, have their own agenda in terms of th they're pro-police and they're anti uh, just individual rights. So there should be an, an independent prosecutor and maybe there should be a defense counsel or a public defender also in there just to check on the, the prosecutor and how the evidence is being presented, you know, more independence and not so much discretion for the prosecutors. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's I have no good feeling towards prosecutors, but that's another story. This seems very overwhelming to most people because like, we see we see something and then we get outraged. Nothing happens. But then another incident happens. And what is it that the public can do to like if somebody's listening to this podcast, like what would you recommend they do to in order to try to affect change? You really have to go out there and vote. You have to be really apprised of the different propositions, the different candidates, even the judges. You know, if a judge who is running for judgeship is a former prosecutor, that affects us. You know, I have to go into court and fight a former prosecutor as a judge and then fight the prosecutor as well. And, you know, it's tough. I, you know, it's an uphill battle. So you got to make sure that you actually see who is on the ballot and figure out uh, who, what their policies are in terms of propositions or um, things of that nature, which affect um, the law in, in your state, you have to see who's funding that different proposition. You know, here in California, we have Proposition 22. Proposition 22, it will allow, you know, Uber and Lyft and uh, those companies, Postmates, to uh, continue to have their people working for them as independent contractors because a recent ruling ruled that the, all the all the workforce for, for Uber or Lyft uh, have to be employees. And the issue with that for those companies is when you're an employee, you have to be salaried, you have to have benefits, there's a payroll tax that you have to pay to. So of course, Uber and Lyft don't want to pay that. So they paid millions and millions and millions of dollars to bring Proposition 22, which allowed them to maintain all those people as independent contractors and not employees. So when you see a proposition like that, and you see that Uber and Lyft are pumping so much money into it, you know that it's for the, their own interest. So I advise people to really follow the money to learn about the different propositions. So if you're out there, obviously vote. Can we go through Proposition 17 in California? Let me see which one is that one. I have That's my list the one that here. restores people's conviction of felonies, like right to vote. Okay, okay. That one's a little bit tough because it's more nuanced because it does restore their right to vote. But I think there is a mechanism in there which gives more discretion in terms of how people are going to be prosecuted. Um, 
Uh, I have to take out my notes. I have to take out my notes for that one because you know there's just like ten propositions and I, I don't remember each yeah, 20, single one yeah, of them. Yeah, every but, year. Like I don't know understand why you have so many like thirty or forty every year in California. <laughs> I, I guess I also wanted to quickly talk about the proposition twenty five, which replaces cash bail with some alleged risk assessment. Um, what do you think of that? So the issue with that is a couple of years ago, the legislature passed a bill which got rid of uh, cash bail. Now, what Prop 25 is trying to do is trying to undo that. But the issue with that is, yes, it, it, it's more nuanced because the, the issue with Prop 25, the people who don't like Prop 25 are saying, well, it's racist. Prop 25 is racist because the risk assessment allows whoever is conducting that risk assessment to be racist and to have discretion as to whether someone is a risk or not, and then therefore uh, go out on bail. But if you reenact cash bail, then it's even much harder for someone to come out of jail because they have to pay for the bond, and then a lot of people don't have that money. So yes, while you know, it may be racist for a risk assessment person or organization to make that call, it's better than having to pay so much in bond, which is another detriment to people, which doesn't allow them to come, allow them to come out of jail. Since the recording of this podcast, the California voters have approved of both Proposition 22 and Proposition 17, but Proposition 25 was overwhelmingly rejected. And finally, can you let us know where to find you and your organization on social media? So my Instagram is Christian, like the religion. So C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N, period, G-H-C. And that's short for Gizarhanusagarasco. So that's my Instagram. I am on Facebook. Uh, just search my name, Christian Contreras. We do have a JusticeX Instagram account. It's Justice underscore, underscore PDA. Actually, I think it's JusticeX underscore PDA, and um, our website is justice-x.com, and there you'll find the different initiatives that we're working on, our leadership. So our leadership is myself, uh, Austin Dove, who is a 30-year practitioner, Humberto Guizar, who is a 35-year practitioner, who's been a lawyer for quite some time in this area for a long time, who is my mentor, and Stephen King, who has tried over 100 cases to, to verdict. It's been great speaking with y'all. I have another meeting to go to. I'm more than happy to come to another session. Oh, no, this is great. Thank you so much. And this was very educational. And I was, uh, I, I'm still, I, I, it's still hard for me to process all this. Like, it's so overwhelming. <laughs> That's a lot of stuff. But, you know, you got to just continue fighting. <laughs> okay. Well, keep on fighting and good luck with your cases. All right. Thank you much. Bye. Bye. Music for this show is done by Rectex. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.